0: You are now listening to MacroDose. MacroDose. Hello and welcome to MacroDose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. On today's episode, first, we'll take a look at leaked transcripts that show how big arms manufacturers are profiteering from Israel's war in Palestine. Second, and finally, we'll turn to some surprising figures out of the United States. Why is the American economy growing so much faster than Europe and the UK? Time for our first story this week, how big arms manufacturers are profiting from war in the Middle East. An eye-opening bit of investigative reporting from journalist Eli Clifton was published in The Guardian last week. Clifton has gotten hold of transcripts of earnings calls between various US arms manufacturers and the banks and financial institutions who invest in them. An earnings call is a discussion between a company and, usually, various analysts and investors about the period just gone, essentially to review their decision-making and look ahead to the next quarter. It's a chance for the bigger investors, the investment banks and hedge funds who move billions around the world, to interrogate management and form their own opinion about who's up and who's down. And at the moment, it's US arms manufacturers that are very much on the up. Take General Dynamics' reply to a question from an asset manager about their prospects, and I'm reading now from the published transcripts. I quote... You know, the Israel situation obviously is a terrible one, frankly, and one that's just evolving as we speak, responded Jason Aiken, the company's executive vice president of technologies and chief financial officer. But I think if you look at the incremental demand potential coming out of that, the biggest one to highlight and that really sticks out is probably on the artillery side. Unquote. Meanwhile, over at arms contractor Raytheon, Morgan Stanley wanted to know how quickly the US's big military spending increase could turn into revenue. Raytheon were blunt. Again, I'm quoting here. Greg Hayes, Raytheon's chairman and executive director, responded, I think really across the entire Raytheon portfolio, you're going to see a benefit of this restocking, on top of what we think is going to be an increase in the top-line budget. Unquote, referring there to Department of Defence budget. Raytheon's share price is up 10% in the last month, General Dynamics is up 7%, Lockheed's is up 9%. For US arms manufacturers, business is booming and traders are licking their lips at the prospect of fat profits to come. According to the New York Times, I quote, "...as of last year, the United States controlled an estimated 45% of the world's weapons exports, nearly five times more than any other nation, and its highest level since the years immediately following the collapse of the Soviet Union. This is up 30% from a decade ago." Even before the Israel-Gaza war, things were looking up for arms manufacturers. The same New York Times piece quotes Gregory J. Hayes, Raytheon's chief executive, on another earnings call in April this year, quote, Lots of good news out there, and for us, it's just a question of getting it out the door at this point. Now, it's wrong to argue wars happen because arms manufacturers make a profit out of them. Even US military spending comes to just 2.8% of GDP. It's a big chunk of the economy, but it's not decisive and it's not enough to drive an entire policy. But it certainly doesn't hurt the arms manufacturers that wars are becoming more common. What's driving military expansion and increased conflict across the globe is the byproduct of great power contests more generally. The fact that since Donald Trump was president, the US has been aggressively attempting to cripple China's technological ambitions, and that in turn is tied to its expansion of military expenditure and increased willingness to supply weapons to close allies. What was, before 2008, close to a unipolar world, with the US uniquely dominant economically, militarily, technologically, has given way over the last 15 years or more to a world in which Washington is increasingly alarmed by what the military think tanks there call its peer competitor in the East. Economic policy, as Biden's national security adviser, Jake Sullivan, spelled out in a striking speech back in April, is increasingly aligned with foreign policy and broader strategy. The result is a securitization of economic policy and whole economies, in which things like, for example, the development of advanced machine learning now requires a US government licence on the grounds of national security and defence, as per the executive order on artificial intelligence Biden signed earlier this week. Over in the UK, this is the kind of thing Rachel Reeves is gesturing at with her talk of securinomics at her speech earlier in the year. And as we've said before on this show, this isn't coming out of nowhere. Just as China had dramatic success with its research and investment efforts, reaching the cutting edge of advanced semiconductor manufacturing and the development of 5G, the US is attempting a similar focus on national priorities, hence the rush to fund semiconductors and invest in decarbonization. The US is expanding the reach of its global arms industry, with India and Indonesia now becoming valuable customers, squeezing out Russian and Chinese manufacturers. The point here isn't only commercial. With arms sales so tightly regulated by the US government, there is a direct, Washington-led drive to integrate supposedly friendly countries into US defense systems. Long-standing allies, like Poland, directly bordering on Russia, have massively ramped up their own defense spending under the aegis of NATO. The result everywhere is a more unstable and militarized world. Global military spending hit a real-terms record of $2.24 trillion, that's £1.8 trillion, in 2022, up 3.7% from the previous year, according to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. It is expected to take another lurch upwards this year and then into the foreseeable future. If there's a quick lesson from these earnings calls, it's a very cynical one. If you want to make serious money in today's world, the quickest way is to profit from the crisis itself. Whether selling rice or tomatoes hit by climate change, natural gas when supplies are cut off across Europe or, as in this case, weapons just as the world lurches into never-ending conflicts. While your banks might be offering you the chance of ethical investment pots for your savings, the reality is that now is a really good time to be in oil and weapons. And until we can pull the systemic causes of these incentives out by the roots, we're going to see more and more capitalists profiteering from crisis and instability. On to our second story this week, the United States' unexpectedly good growth figures. New figures released on Thursday last week showed that the US economy has grown by 4.9% over the last year, This news came as a surprise to the economic mainstream, putting the US economy well ahead of mostly pretty gloomy forecasts and far ahead of other developed economies. For context, the UK is currently stuttering along at 0.8% growth and the eurozone is even lower at 0.6%. In almost anyone's predictions, a nearly 5% upswing just isn't supposed to be happening right now. As regular listeners of this podcast will know, The US central bank, the Federal Reserve, has been jamming up interest rates over the last 18 months or so in the belief that making borrowing more expensive would reduce the amount of money washing around the system. This would, in turn, stop people spending so much, provoke unemployment, and, the Fed hoped, bring down inflation. We've covered this a number of times in Macrodose, but the basic story is that higher interest rates means less spending, less spending means more unemployment, more unemployment frightens workers into accepting lower pay, and lower paid workers, so the theory goes, means lower price rises. It's a pretty brutal logic, but this is basically what the world's central banks think they're doing when they start trying to put up interest rates. And, as we've covered numerous times before, it's also a very flawed logic, with the assumption being that inflation is coming mainly from excess demand in the economy and therefore ignoring the very obvious price shocks coming from, for example, Russia invading Ukraine or climate crises like droughts in Panama. Clearly it's supply chain crises that are pushing up prices, and these have precisely nothing to do with how much workers are being paid. In any case, the key point for today's show is that these new growth figures from the US have once again undermined mainstream economic assumptions. Even with the highest interest rates in 16 years, the United States economy has defied expectations, not just avoiding recession, but demonstrating significant growth in the opposite direction. Business investment is up, wages are up and unemployment has stayed low and stable at around 3.5% for around 18 months, which is far below the 5 and a bit percent it averaged in the 20 years up to the pandemic. By all the usual metrics, America is booming. The US hasn't had this sort of gross domestic product, that's GDP growth since the late 1990s, barring the weird moment of opening up after the COVID lockdowns. So as noted Gen X early 90s one-hit wonders, four non-blondes once asked, what's going on? One answer, provided by the Times in London, is that none other than Taylor Swift and Beyonce might just be boosting the US economy. The two pop stars have been touring the US and the globe in recent months, attracting crowds so vast they are helping to push up total US GDP. The Times writes, I quote, "...household spending in the world's largest economy leapt by 4% over the quarter, which analysts said was partly linked to fans of Swift and Beyonce booking hotels, dining out and heading to bars in destinations on the artist's nationwide stadium tours." It's that household spending lift that helped push up economic growth overall. But this catchy headline misses out the obvious question. Who are these people who have all this money to spend? Most people in the US have seen their wages and salaries fall over the last few years as prices, especially for essentials, have surged. Behind what are now very positive headline figures, this is the primary reason why most Americans don't think the economy is working for them and don't credit Joe Biden's administration with much success because, frankly, the economy may be making some people rich, but for most people it hasn't really been working. In reality, it's only been in the last few months of this year that wages have finally caught up with and overtaken price rises. Now you might be thinking here, okay, but even if real household incomes have been falling in recent years, why are households now spending more? This economic growth must be coming from somewhere. And it's here we have to return, as we often do, to the pandemic, and in particular the massive surge in household savings that lockdowns and benefits payments produced. Around 80% of the US economy is in services, so when lockdowns happened, closing those services, the economic impact was enormous. People couldn't spend money like they had before, and for many, their income was still being guaranteed, or at least part of it guaranteed, by the government. For those typically in white-collar jobs able to work from home, lockdowns meant you were still earning money with almost nowhere to spend it. There are only so many Peloton home bicycles you can cycle on at any one time. At some point, you'd really just rather go to the cinema or, or take a holiday. But with these options off the table, richer households in the US, like in the UK and across the developed world, were able to save money on a huge scale. A new paper from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco shows that these excess savings by US households soared to $2.1 trillion above their usual pre-pandemic level by mid-2021. As lockdowns ended, These households have been spending their excess savings to the point that by June this year only $190 billion of that $2 trillion remained in their hands. It's this drawdown of excess savings, primarily by richer households, that partly explains why US economic growth has remained so robust, and how so many people can afford to buy crazily expensive gig tickets for admittedly pretty decent performers. Over in Sweden, the price of Beyonce tickets has been so great compared to normal concert tickets, it's actually added a little bit to the register of inflation there. As those savings in the US have now been spent, the boost they provided will also be coming to an end. But there's another element that I think needs addressing here, and it's one that works dead against the standard economic story of what interest rate rises are supposed to do. In the standard story, rate rises are supposed to cool the economy down, reducing growth and pushing up unemployment because borrowing has become more expensive. But obviously this doesn't apply if you're not a borrower. If you're lending money, you might find that interest rate rises make you richer. This is exactly what has happened to US banks, who, despite the turmoil around Silicon Valley Bank and others at the start of the year, have made record profits over the first half of 2023. This is what you'd expect to happen to banks when interest rates go up. The more they can charge for lending, the more money they're likely to make. The same thing has been happening in the UK. US economist James Galbraith points out that with US government debt rising through a series of massive crises from 60% of GDP in the early 2000s to about 130% of GDP today, there's an awful lot of interest payments now being given to debt holders, coming to about $460 billion over the last year. And with about 70% of US government debt held by households and businesses in the US, that represents, Goldbraith argues, a big transfer of government money to people and institutions likely to spend at least some of it in the US. In other words, when interest rates go up, holders of US debt tend to become better off and will spend at least some of that money boosting economic growth. Behind the glamorous American Dream headlines of Beyoncé and Taylor Swift, I think both of these stories, of the post-lockdown spend and the debt profiteers, help to explain some of the headline economic successes we're seeing across the pond right now. And with that, it's important to clarify again that both of these stories should not be mistaken for any US Federal Reserve genius or validate any belief in raising interest rates as the solution to economic problems. Okay, moving towards the end of today's show, there's one final element I'd like to bring out here because I think it adds some context that often goes overlooked. Two weeks ago in this podcast, I touched on something that I think is very underappreciated when it comes to understanding the US economy today, certainly outside of America. After decades as an importer of fossil fuels, with imports peaking in 2006, the so-called shale revolution in the US over the last decade has massively boosted the United States' domestic production of oil and gas. By 2019, the US had become a net exporter of both, selling more of both to the rest of the world than it bought. This is important to remember as it has a number of consequences. Firstly, it significantly insulates the US from disruptions to energy supplies in the rest of the world. When the Ukraine war broke out, Europe was hammered by the price rise, whilst the impact of the US was much less significant. Natural gas in Europe cost about four times as much as the US per cubic foot at the peak of the price surge last summer. More to the point, as a net exporter of fossil fuels, the supply shock even partly works the US's advantage overall, though obviously most Americans trying to fill their car wouldn't have noticed this. This isn't a story about smart US institutions engineering a soft landing, as some claim about the Federal Reserve, nor is it about the Biden administration's efforts to invest in domestic manufacturing, which is still very much in its early stages. Instead, this is a story of resource shocks and how they play out in resource-rich countries versus those reliant on imports. A story of the pandemic, of the war in Ukraine, of climate breakdown, and how these factors now play out not just between, but also within nation-states. Over the last year, there has been a surge in US organisation and activism. Places that were notoriously anti-union, like Amazon and Starbucks, have been forced to recognise unions. There have been important victories, like that of the Screen Actors Guild a few months ago, and even where strikes haven't happened, unions have been able to win better contracts and bigger pay awards. The latest, as of this week, is the conclusion of a tentative deal with General Motors, the last of the Detroit Big Three motor manufacturers that have been facing the strike of the United Auto Workers. These union struggles are just one part of a fight over the distribution of wealth within a resource-rich nation. And just as it's important to dig into the headline figures to work out why the US is growing, it's also important to ask who has that money. The US may have reshored fossil fuel production to insulate itself from the worst energy shocks, but with lockdown spending coming to an end and debt repayment building, this growing struggle over the distribution of wealth is only going to become more intense. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.